Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based podcast with regional content for regional clinicians. I'm Alyssa Hathaway, a GP and family planning clinician and head of JCU's clinical school here in Mackay. This collaborative podcasting project between North Queensland regional training hubs, JCU, and our local regional hospital and health services will bring you a different regionally relevant podcast each fortnight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we meet today, who were the original providers of healthcare in this region. In today's episode, I'm joined with Dr. Denise Craig, a psychologist from the Cairns region, who has recently completed her PhD with James Cook University in the practical application of advanced care plans. Welcome, Denise. Thank you, Alyssa. Lovely to join you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm really keen to talk about advanced care planning today. As I mentioned, this has been part of your PhD project and it's something close to your heart, isn't it, Denise? What brought you to advanced care planning? Oh, look, it really is close to my heart. Uh, I've been a psychologist working with people with dementia for the last 14 years. And I came to that position through a personal link when my mother was diagnosed with dementia. What I realised as a daughter is that sometimes clinicians are not really across the law and there can be some difficulty understanding consent and uh, shared decision making. But of course, People who have a diagnosis of dementia who complete an advanced care plan are doing so to, to take advantage of their right to, to put down in writing what it is that's really important to them. Of course, advanced care planning is not just for those patients who have a diagnosis of dementia, is it? It can be with other degenerative conditions like multiple sclerosis or motor neuron disease or even conditions like Parkinson's, for which dementia can sometimes be part of the disease process. That's absolutely correct. It's really for anybody who would like to put down in writing what it is that really matters to them later. So they may have no diagnosis at all. I always think that a diagnosis might make decision-making easier because you're probably able to get in touch with what your later life might look like. Uh, otherwise, I mean, imagine if you were 21 and had never had a day ill in your life and somebody suggested that you might think about doing an advanced care plan. I just don't know how well that would work unless, of course, you really did have clear ideas and some people do. In my study, I narrowed it to people with a neurodegenerative disorder, really to wrap some parameters around it. So all of those conditions that you just mentioned were a part of my study specifically, but a person may not have any of, any of the above. Now, in Queensland, we started doing advanced health directives. It was around 2000, I think, wasn't it, Denise? And the legislation's changed a little bit recently. As you mentioned, clinicians are not always over the latest updates in the legislation. Can you give us a bit of an idea about what clinicians need to know now? Uh, look, I, I think what clinicians are doing is they're busy trying to assess what is what is going on for a person and help to make often typically medical decisions around how best to support the person. And so advanced care planning, certainly in Queensland, to my understanding, has never had mandatory education wrapped around it. And the laws in Queensland are complex and our medical education tends to keep the end-of-life law substitute decision-making type education a little bit generic so that that it will apply across Australia. 
So we know from research that was conducted by Ben White and Lindy Wilmot over the years, and there was a really amazing study done in 2014 where they looked at the knowledge of specialist doctors across three states, and they found that this was really a substitute decision-making and advanced care planning, end-of-life law, actually, as they called it, was really not well understood at all. And it's partly because of the complexity with it. Really, for doctors to get into a deep dive and understand this, it's going to be self-directed. Uh, rather than mandatory. Right. And of course, doctors would find it really challenging to talk about reducing treatment or withdrawing treatment when often doctors are desperate to offer everything they can to a patient. In your research, Denise, what was it that you found? I found that doctors were consistently agreeable that advanced care plans are designed to give people a voice and they encourage people to complete an advanced care plan to have a voice. But in essence, in reality, decision-making is really very complicated and that voice tends to hang in the balance when a person doesn't have the capacity to make the decision in the moment. So the doctors were saying, we really want to know what matters to this person and how are we going to get to that information, they didn't always have faith in the advanced care plan to be able to give them the information that they needed. So there was generally consensus that doctors would be reluctant to leave families out of the mix. Families, in theory, will know what the person had intended when they completed their advanced care plan, and families will be the people who will live on after a person has died. Of course, the family doesn't have to be involved in that advanced care planning, do they? But it would certainly be easier for the patient and the clinicians and other family members if as many members of that patient's family could be involved as early as possible, I imagine. That's right. Generally, families, well, a person completing a plan is strongly advised and encouraged to include their family. But that was one of the things that I have had concerns about because a person might conceivably complete a plan to cut their family out. Perhaps they want to alleviate the family of responsibility. In some cases, they may not trust the decisions of the family. And I've certainly also seen it occur where family can be really troubled by becoming involved in these decisions because they can then feel responsible for perhaps the death of somebody that they love very much. So it's quite challenging. And I understand the need for the generosity and compassion, I think, of doctors to say, we really do want everybody to be okay with this. It's just a little bit tricky, especially in those cases where perhaps family were not aware, perhaps a person completed a form to maintain that control. And we must remember that we do have to respect what we know about the person. And if that's been written in an advanced care plan, it really needs to be respected and included in conversations and serious consideration. Okay, so there's some of the humour factors contributing to advanced care planning. What are some of the systemic issues at play found in your research, Denise? Well, the law was a really big one, complexity with the law, and also interesting issues with trying to access the advanced care plan. So it's one thing for a person to complete it, 
But it's a multi-step process, of course, as you would know, especially when it's the health directive. They have not only been to see their usually GP, but also typically either a JP in the community or a lawyer to have it witnessed as well. And then they tend to put it in their file. So if a person is to be admitted to hospital and the treating team asks to see the advanced care plan, chances are it's not in the medical records. So we do have a portal in Queensland that people are encouraged to upload it to. But remember, the patient owns the document and it's up to them what they do with it. If they choose to keep it in the filing cabinet at home, that's their right. But if the treating team asks for it and the family bring it in two days later, it's possible that the patient is by now being treated by a different team and an acute resuscitation plan has been completed in the meantime. And so sometimes doctors feel as though the acute resuscitation plan is addressing the hospital needs. And so there seems to be less priority then about necessarily reading the advanced care plan, which the person completed out in the community. Okay. So that advanced care plan portal, can you tell us a little bit more about that, please, Denise? That's been an initiative that was set up to try to help get around this problem because forms are not registered. If you complete even an enduring document, they're not registered anywhere. And so how do we get our hands on them when they're needed? There was an office set up in Brisbane. It's the Office of Advanced Care Planning. And in the latest forms, the Enduring Power of Attorney and the Advanced Health Directive form and the Statement of Choices form, the address and details for submitting it to to that office are there. And what What that office does is peruse the document to make sure it's been completed and that it's valid. So that means it's been appropriately witnessed, etc. And they will then upload it into the portal. So that's incredibly handy. That also gives the Queensland Ambulance access to the document. So if the document is stored in the portal, QAS will probably be across it by the time they arrive at their destination and they will be familiar with the contents and the gist of what the person has said there. So that's really helpful. But of course, it's back to the patient to have submitted that for upload. I did find that sometimes clinicians don't, they don't always know how to use the portal because generally, certainly in the far north Queensland region, there hasn't been a critical mass yet of the documents build up in the portal. So if a clinician was to have a look in it, it might be nothing there. So there might be that sense of not having reward for effort, but it's a magnificent option. People can case note in there to say, saw Mr. Smith today and we had a chat about the decisions that he made a year ago in the community and his health directive and he had a new diagnosis since then but he feels even more strongly about his decision now. That type of case noting can help the future decision maker doctors to have confidence about the decisions that have been made whereas typically another systemic issue is that document there's no legal requirement for it to be reviewed so it could be eons old and nobody's looked at it again so it's tricky to ask a hospital-based doctor to have faith in a document they don't know what the patient understood when they recorded their decisions. And the old forms used to be mostly tick boxes, yeses and nos, which didn't really satisfy the need of the treating doctor to say, well, did they really understand this? So if a form has never been reviewed again, and meanwhile, a person has perhaps even their situation has changed and it's not been reviewed, then it's going to be trickier to get that across the line. Whereas I'm I maintain if we took a village approach to this and we all took every opportunity to review documents with people to say, just checking, is this still what you would like? And then document that, that Mr. Smith stands by his decision. Or sometimes people 
say, no, actually, I did that straight after a diagnosis and I expected a pretty bleak outcome and there were issues going on with the family and I don't feel that way anymore. And we're then sending them back to the GP to say, please review to, to have a really good chat and change the document. If they still have capacity to make a new document, they might like to take advantage of the for the new forms, which I think are much better. They give much more nuance. Yes, there's yeses and there's nos, but there's also unsure and text boxes. So you might say, well, I'm really not sure about this particular decision. And maybe this is one for my attorneys to make with the treating team at the time. And that again would probably give treating doctors the faith that you really understood some of the complexity in this. Whereas if all of the yeses or all of the nos are ticked with no context added, I think it increases doctors' anxiety. With the portal, Denise, do other states have similar options? If we have visitors from interstate, do we have the opportunity to look for these documents or similar documents from other states around Australia? That's a really good question. Uh, certainly we have my health record, and so that's Australia-wide. Doctors might very well find somebody else's, another state's advanced care plan in there. If a person moves to Queensland, they're going to stay here, then th the treatment of their advanced care plan would be a little bit different. It wouldn't actually be uploaded by the Office of Advanced Care Planning at this point. They could hand it to whichever hospital was providing their care and, of course, their new GP, and they could make sure that it's in the my health record, but it, it, it is treated a tiny bit differently. And there's some little issues with following advanced care plans from other states as well. My understanding, at least, that it's only the elements which match Queensland law, which can be expected to be applied here. Where there is not a match in the law, then obviously that leaves a gap in Queensland. So, Denise, in terms of the advanced care planning, you've talked about the importance of involving as many family members as possible into the preparation of the advanced care plan and of using the text boxes or the unsure category in the new format paperwork to help give doctors and other healthcare professionals as much information about the context and the background of this particular patient's wishes. You've talked about the fact that we need to be uploading all of this paperwork to the portal wherever possible and reviewing paperwork in case patient circumstances have changed and their wishes have evolved over time. How else can advanced care planning be done better then? In my perfect world, we'd be taking a multidisciplinary approach to this, and that might even be in relation to the setup of the document in the first place. So rather than thinking of it as being important to complete it in one sitting, depending on what is going on for a person, it may be that they could benefit from the input of another discipline. Even the allied health disciplines, uh, speech pathologists often have a role here, dietitians often have a role here. So it's about uh, being as all-encompassing as possible the more richly informed the document is or the decisions are, probably the more confidence it will give to treating doctors. But there's one little caveat here, and that is that by law, the patient's under no obligation whatsoever to accept advice. This is something that they must not be coerced to do. It's a matter of inviting them and helping them to understand why this might help. So I think we also need this iterative approach and taking that whole village approach that we're all in 
this together. I do hope that people completing a plan can remember that this is probably going to be read by somebody who's never met them before. And that person could be under a degree of pressure and is really trying to get a clear sense of the person's values and wishes or directions. So I love that the new forms provide more opportunity for nuance. The forms came in after my data collection, so I'm actually not sure yet what difference the nuanced information might be making. But the other thing I say to people is, by all means, if you can, fill these out on a computer because you can fit much more in the text boxes. <laughs> and the new forms allow you to add sheets as well, which the old form didn't. So if you choose to write War and Peace, you are allowed now, and that can get added to the back of the document. So we've switched a bit in the changes to a more human rights lens to really, truly, authentically trying to get at enabling the person, giving them all of the information that they need to make the best decisions for themselves that will help them to express their autonomy. I think that's really, really important is bring in all of the advice. And if you, if you need to contact somebody else or you need to refer the patient to perhaps some guidance from another organisation, I mean, Advanced Care Planning Australia offers telephone consults to help people who might need some more guidance. So, so take advantage of that. And then if you have a flag in your system saying it's been whatever, one year, two years, a new diagnosis or whatever you think appropriate, and you raise the topic again with your patients, then I think we're more likely to see more faith in the documents. And when there's more faith in the documents, I think they're more likely to do what they were designed to do for a patient. Sure. You make the really good point there too, Denise, that the people preparing the document are not going to be the same people actioning the document at that pinch point for the patients. When we are preparing these documents, it's a really valuable opportunity to give a little bit of guidance about potential consequences for that patient's decision, uh, the various decisions that patient's making. And we need to be really clear that patients understand what artificial nutrition means, what artificial hydration means without offering coercion, as you say, inviting yes. patients to make a decision that they're comfortable with. Well, I think that's a really good point, Alyssa, if I could pick up on that. Certainly, socially, I did speak to a lady once who was a very, very intelligent, highly accomplished lady, and she said, I've done my health directive, and I have ticked the box that I do want artificial nutrition and hydration. I do not wish to die hungry or thirsty. So I said, can you, can you explain what that might look like? Uh, tell me what that might mean. And she didn't know. And so it seemed to me that it probably wasn't explained to her what artificial nutrition and hydration might possibly entail. When this type of thing happens, they're the types of decisions that can erode the hospital doctor's faith that the person had given informed consent through their advanced care plan. Now, in today's new world, she might have been able to support her choice with a comment. The day that I spoke to her, she had no further information because she appeared not to know what that meant, but she had this clear notion that dying hungry or thirsty would not be pleasant. I could also remind people that there is the statement that we've got two forms in Queensland, and the health directive is the legal heavyweight that was born in about 2000. 
But since then, there's a statement of choices form, which it's not providing consent, but it gives people an opportunity to provide some really rich, qualifying, guiding information. And sometimes if a person, let's say a person with dementia is, does, does not meet capacity requirements to complete an advanced care plan, but their spouse may choose to complete this statement of choices for them, then that's an option. Whereas a second party can't complete a health directive. It has to be the person who has capacity to do that. So the statement of choices does provide a really good option. In fact, for people who are concerned about the legal route and feeling as though they may make a decision that they might possibly not stand by in 10 years' time, whatever reason people may have for not liking the legal option, then the statement of choices simply provides useful information that can help guide decision makers so that it's nice that that's there. Denise, what else do we need our patients to be aware of? As you say, they need to think about the Advanced Health Directive, they've got the statement of choices as an option, and it's great for patients to have other family members on board when they're making those decisions, although it's not a legal obligation. What else do we need to keep front of mind in our patients when they're doing this documentation and making these decisions? I think if they have strong feelings, it's about trying to articulate where they're coming from so that a perfect stranger will get a sense of where they're coming from. And this comes back to, although they're under no legal obligation to discuss their plans with significant others, doing so might help everyone. The doctors that I interviewed in the study were a bit reluctant to strictly apply an advanced care plan because they really wanted to make sure that everybody was on board with whatever was the current decision. And doctors did think that families would likely be aware of the decisions that the person had made. So having those conversations as families, and sometimes families can care so much they might shut down. A person who might say, look, I want to talk about this. And you'll hear family members say, oh, no, don't be silly. You'll live for another 10 years. Let's not go there. Well, I say, well, actually, death is the ultimate end point for all of us. But advanced care planning is not only about preparation for death either. It's really about incapacity. And any of us could lose capacity at any point for any reason, and it might be temporary. And the purpose of the advanced care plan is to still provide that voice when you are unable to give that voice in the moment. Doctors in my study made very clear that what mattered the most to them was knowing what mattered the most to their patients. That's a nice message, I think, to communicate to patients is bottom line, as a village, we want as a society to do our very best to provide you with what it is that you would choose for yourself if you were able to do so in the moment. Can you be on board and help with that by communicating clearly and reviewing decisions? And an advanced care plan that's done very well is very much appreciated by hospital teams and families because it can just help everybody to be okay at a real well, more okay, shall we say, at a really tricky time. And of course, a more difficult decision and discussion for families can be around voluntary assisted dying, can't it, Denise, which has just become legal in Queensland and is legal in many other Australian states or soon will be. How can the advanced care planning help inform that voluntary assisted dying decision? 
They actually don't sit together by legislation. Uh, that's because an advanced care plan, the statement of choices slash advanced health directive, take effect on the loss of capacity of the patient. So they have expressed their wishes to be read when they do not have capacity. But voluntary assisted dying requires that a person maintains capacity. So the person cannot include voluntary assisted dying in their advanced care plan in a way that it could then be actioned. So that can can't happen. But people can put whatever information they like in their advanced care plan. So they may choose to say, you know what, if I got to make a decision myself, I'd be all in favour of voluntary assisted dying or whatever they might say. And that information might help a treating doctor in future to say, well, this is where the person was coming from. I now know this tiny little bit more. But it will not, by legislation, mean that a person has qualified for voluntary assisted dying, no matter what they've written in there, simply because, as I said, the issue of capacity versus no capacity. And that voluntary assisted dying question is so polarizing, isn't it? Some people are very for and some people are very against when a lot of the community probably need more education around the advanced health directive and that statement of choice that you mentioned, which actually might serve their needs better and making sure that people's wishes are adequately communicated and be really reassuring, can't it? Yes. And it's of course, it's really tricky to get to everybody. And trust me, I'm trying. (laughs) But it is, I think we need a top-down, bottom-up and side-to-side approach to all of the advanced care planning. And by that, I mean top-down, so support from the highest of authorities and bottom-up, getting to consumers and helping to educate them and, and empower them to make whatever decision is right for them, including perhaps not participating in advanced care planning. Some people do not wish to engage in this, as is absolutely they're right. Sometimes culturally, people have got other practices around this, so we must be very careful that we are advising people of options and never crossing the line into coercing. And side to side, how do we help each other? How do we support each other and have good communication to, to remove some barriers and increase enablers to all of us supporting our patients and, and clients? Because I think that's why we're all in healthcare. We all want the same outcome, and that is the best possible life and death for our patients and clients. What a fantastic point to finish on, Denise. We need to support enablers and reduce barriers to the very best health care, including end-of-life planning and planning for when patients' capacity is limited or taken away entirely. Uh, Dr. Denise Craig, psychologist in Cairns, thank you so much for your time today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on board, Alyssa. I appreciate the opportunity. For more information about The Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline, 
and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, health services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics. 